right, good morning. How are we doing? Good to see you guys, those of you that I can see. Uh, so excited to be with you guys this morning. God's doing some really cool things across all of LifePoint Church at both of our locations, and I'm excited that uh, I get the honor to be here with you guys this morning to experience it. We are in week eight, I believe, of the story, and we're looking at a period called the Judges. Now, we're actually going to look at this again next week in a story called Ruth, and maybe you're familiar with that one, but I liken these two weeks in the Judges, today and next week, um, to the kinds of themes that you might get in a movie. Anybody see a movie this weekend? It's a really popular time for movies. Okay, now if you're, if you're a lady, and I know that's stereotypical, but if you're a lady, next week is really your time because Ruth really lays out like a lifetime movie, all right? But if you're a guy, today is really your day because the book of Judges is full of all the kinds of things that make for a great guy movie. So there's violence, and there's battles, and there's blood, and there's mistresses, and there's junior high humor that we'll read about here in just a little bit. And it's perfect. So if you're a guy, today is your day. So I need you to think about those kinds of movies with me just for a second, all right? These are movies like Rambo, Die Hard, Braveheart, 300. These are the themes that we find in the book of Judges. Gladiator, all right? And even if you're, for the ladies, a little Laura Croft, all right? Some Tomb Raider thrown in there a little bit for those of you who like that, okay? So this is the kind of thing we find in the book of Judges. So if you need a Bible this morning, we would love to put one in your hands. We're going to read from this book of Judges. Just raise your hand, and that's yours to keep. We'll give you that today. It's the seventh book of the Bible, so you can kind of count and go in there. If you're following along in your story Bible, just turn ahead to chapter 8. And here's what's happened for us so far. is that Joshua has led God's people, the Israelites, into the promised land. And that was last week. And they're in this area where they're enjoying this relationship with God, and there's great blessing, and they're God's people and all that. Awesome place enjoying all that together. And as long as Joshua is the leader, they're following God and everything's going great. And then as it would turn out, Joshua dies. And then the people start to suffer some consequences because even though God has proved himself faithful over all the years, the people were still prone to kind of choose their own way and make their own decisions, even apart from God. And so as they're trying to clean out the land, as God instructed them, remove all the enemies, remove all the foreign gods, they got to a point where they said, we think we've done good enough. And then the effects of that started to be played out. They started to be affected by the beliefs and the lifestyles of those nations that they allowed to remain. And so, so much so that one generation removed from Joshua's lifetime, the people had completely forgotten about all the great things that God had done for them. So when you open up to the book of Judges and you come to chapter 2 that we're going to read here in just a second, it is essentially is like a prologue for the book of Judges. It's like you might read the opening scene of a movie and it's setting the stage for everything that's going to follow. And so here's the way it actually reads in Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 10. Now Joshua has just passed away, right? He's the leader. And after that, a whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals. Now we'll read a couple of names here. Baals, those are just the foreign gods. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them, and they aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtaroths. 
In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. So that whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. And they were in great distress. And then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge, and he saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. So it's describing for us on the front end what we're about to read in the stories that follow throughout the rest of the book of Judges. And what it's laying out for us is that God's people get caught up in a cycle. I think this graphic will perfectly illustrate it for you this morning, and we'll refer to it often. But people get caught up in this cycle. And so at the top, they, they have sin, all right? So they're choosing to do their own thing. They're, they're, they're forsaking God. They're, they're saying, we want to go down this road, not your road, God. We want to do things our way. And so there's a period of disobedience. And what happens because of disobedience is that God allows them to suffer the consequences of their own choices, and they move to a time of pain. The enemies start to come in, and God allows them to uh, suffer consequences in battle. The pagan nations are even used by God, and he essentially removes his hand of protection from his people, the Israelites, and they go into this period of pain. And it might last eight years, or it might last 40 years. But when the people are in this period of pain, they're really starting to feel the crunch, and it gets to the point where they actually cry out to God. They, they pray. They say, God, we will return to you if you send some help. And they're promising God, we're going to do a 180 with our life if you send some deliverance. And that's exactly what God does. And every time God hears them cry out, he sends a deliverer. And he does it in the form of a judge who will come in and he'll save the day. When the judge comes in and brings deliverance, they move into a time of peace and there's blessing between the people and God and, and they're enjoying a relationship and that might last for six years or it might last for 80 years. So the people of Israel move through this cycle a number of different times throughout the story that we read in the book of Judges. The judge leads people and he's doing a great job and he's following God and then he dies and the people walk away from God. They experience pain in their life. They cry out to God. He sends a judge again and delivers people and it kind of repeats itself over and over and over again. Now, as you think about the judges, we're not talking about Lance Edo, all right? We're talking Thor. We're not talking about Judge Judy. We're talking about people who are military leaders, they're spiritual directors even. They are political leaders. And in the book of Judges, we'll read about 12 of them. 11 of them are men, and one of them is a woman. And each of their stories is introduced by these words. Something to this effect. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then you read their story, and at the end of it, it's bookended with these words, and then the land had peace. So, can I tell you about a few of my favorites? 
One I love is a story of a guy by the name of Ehud. So the Israelites have been enslaved to a king by the name of Eglon, and they've been oppressed for 18 years. And Ehud is essentially an assassin. That's what he is. And so Ehud puts together a plan of attack. He's going to get an entourage together, and he's going to go to the king and present him with a present. And so they walk over to the palace, they present this gift to the king, and they start to turn and walk back towards their own land. And Ehud says, guys, go on ahead. I just remembered I have a special message that I want to deliver to the king. It's a message from God. You guys go on back. And he turns around and he goes back to the palace and he meets the bodyguards and he says, listen, I have a special message from God. I must deliver it to the king. And they say, oh, we'll go right on into his private chambers. And the king has such a large ego, he wants to hear this special message from God. He dismisses all of his attendants and bodyguards and it's the king and it's Ehud. Now we learn two interesting things in this story and I don't know if they're really relevant or not, but I like these facts is that Ehud is left-handed and the king is extremely fat. You can read those in the book of Judges, all right? And so what it describes for us next is a moment where Ehud essentially says, king, come close, I want to whisper this message to you. And it says that Ehud is left-handed. And so he makes a move like this where he reaches to his inner right thigh and he pulls out a double-edged sword that's 18 inches long. And as he moves in for kind of a side hug... (laughs) He plunges it into King Eglon, and it says that he's so fat that his fat just envelops the entire blade. So the king is laying dead on the ground, and Ehud locks the doors, and he escapes out the back way. Well, the bodyguards think, well, what is going on in there? He hasn't come out for a long time, and they check the doors, and they're locked, and they say to one another, oh, he must need some privacy. Maybe he's in the bathroom, and he needs a few minutes. And after an uncomfortable amount of time, they break the doors down. The king is lying dead on the floor, and Ehud has escaped, and the people move into a period of 80 years of peace. That's a good story, isn't it? Uh, How about this one? Is that after Ehud dies, the people kind of get caught up in this cycle again, and God raises up a leader by the name of Deborah. Now, here's a woman who is in a male-dominated society, but she's risen to a level of influence where she is the leader in Israel. She's a prophetess, so she receives special messages from God that she passes on to people. And they're facing oppression by a neighboring king by the name of Jabin. Now, Jabin has a commander of his army by the name of Sisera. And if you're going into battle as a commander, I don't know if that's really a good name. I'm Sisera, you know? Uh, It just sounds funny, doesn't it? But Sisera is leading the enemy army, and Deborah raises up an army of 10,000 people, and she grabs her army commander, and she says, we are going to pursue this guy, and we're going to capture him, and we're going to defeat them. And so they take off in pursuit of Sisera. They have him on the run. He decides that his best bet is to duck into a tent of one of the Israelites, all right? So he's going to hide out in enemy camp. A woman greets him at the front of the tent by the name of Jael, and she says, hey, come on over here. You can hide out in here. You'll be safe. Nobody will know you're here at all. So she lures him into the tent. She gives him some milk and some cookies, and he sits down, and he takes a nap. 
Well, when he's sound asleep, she looks for the opportunity and she grabs a hammer and then she takes a tent peg and she drives it right through the temple of his head and that's the end of the story. That's how they conquer the enemy nation. End of the reign of terror and I assume end of all arguments with her husband, right? You got something to say and she reaches for the hammer, right? <laughs> and it's 40 years, 40 years of peace, all right? And then how about this guy, a guy by the name of Gideon. The Midianites, right? They've got an impressive army and they're just squashing the Israelites. And God raises up a guy by the name of Gideon who's from a really small, weak family and he's very afraid, all right? He's hiding out. And God taps him on the shoulder and says, I want you to be the next guy to lead Israel. But I'm gonna give you some help. I'm gonna help you raise an army. And so Gideon musters up 32,000 men pretty good force, except it's not anywhere close to the number that he needs, which makes what God does next very interesting because God says, it's actually too many. We need to thin out the ranks. And so Gideon says, all right, any of you that are afraid right now, you're allowed to turn back. And 22,000 of them walk away. So now he's got 10,000 guys and God says, all right, let's put them through one more test and make sure they're military quality, right? Take them down to the river and see how they take a drink. That's what he does with them. So those who got down and lapped it up like a dog, he dismissed them instantly. But those who kneeled down and scooped it up, he said, those guys are battle ready. And he ends up with 300 guys. <laughs> and God says, now that we got the army worked out, let me give you the battle plan. Here's what you need to do, all right? Get some glass pitchers and take a torch and stick it inside. That'll be your lantern. And then get some trumpets, all right? And Gideon's got to be thinking... All right, what else do we have? Okay, here's one sword. All right, great, we have a sword, but the sword is essentially for show, all right? And so now Gideon's got 300 guys who are on the outside of a camp. He takes 100 of those guys and he walks right into the middle of the camp. Now, if your strategy is glass pitchers and trumpets, it's kind of the equivalent of being awakened maybe on a Saturday morning if you have kids with flashlights and pots and pans, all right? You might be a little disoriented for a while, but I, I don't know if it's really a good battle strategy. They start breaking these pitchers and they've got these lanterns and they're blowing these trumpets and the Midianites become so disoriented Right? They're awakened. They're startled. You know what it's like. You've ever set, you guys use your phone as an alarm in the morning and it, the alarm goes off. Have you ever answered it instead of turning the alarm off? Hey, hello. Uh, that's what's happening here. They become so disoriented that they actually start killing each other. They're just running around plunging their sword into one another. And that's the strategy that is used to capture the remaining army. And through Gideon, he leads the people into 40 years of peace. Let me give you one more, because this one is probably the more famous of all the judges, all right? A guy by the name of Samson. Maybe we're familiar with his story, but he's unique in this way that if his parents, and even Samson into his lifetime, would allow his hair to grow and never to be cut, it would give him super strength, and he'd have the favor of God in his life. Now, one thing Samson did have a little trouble with was the ladies, all right? And so he ends up with a girlfriend by the name of Delilah, and Delilah is actually a foreigner. She worships foreign gods, and God had said, look, if you do that, if you get involved with the ladies who don't worship the true God, it'll mess you up, and that's exactly what happened to Samson. Now, Samson has some enemies, and Israel does, by the, Phil by the name of the Philistines, 
And the Philistines come to Delilah one day and they say, we'd like to kill your boyfriend and we will pay you if you can get information that will help us accomplish that goal. What do you think about that? She says, okay, I'll help you. So she goes to him one day and she turns on the charms a little bit. Sam, my, you are so strong. How did you get so strong? He says, well, if you were to tie me up with seven strings, bowstrings, I'd become weak as any man. And so he falls asleep. She ties him up with seven bowstrings. She wakes him up and he flexes and he snaps them. And she's disappointed. I mean, rather than him being the one who says, why did you try to trick me? She says, why do you hate me? <laughs> why can't you just tell me the truth? He goes, okay, here, here's the deal. It's got to be seven fresh ropes. Tie me up with seven fresh ropes and I'll be weak as any man. He falls asleep. She ties him up with seven ropes. Samson, your enemies are here. He, he pops up, he flexes and he pops the ropes off. Now she's getting really perturbed. Twice now, you've made a fool of me. Why'd you do that? He goes, okay, here's the deal. Listen, if you were to weave my hair in just the right kind of a way, and he gives her a pattern for how to do that. Weave my hair. I'll become as weak as any man. He falls asleep. She weaves his hair. She wakes him up. Samson, the Philistines are here to get you. He, he pops up. He's still got all of his strength. And now she starts to turn on the tears a little bit, right? How can you love me if you won't be honest with me? And it says that she nagged him to the point that he eventually wore down and he told her everything. He says, here's the deal. My hair's never been cut. If you were to cut my hair, I'll become weak as any man. She lulls him to sleep, gives him a haircut. The Philistines come into the bedroom. She says, Samson, the Philistines are here. He pops up, thinks that he's still got his strength, but he doesn't, and they capture him. They gouge out his eyes and they send him to prison and he begins grinding in the prison day after day after day. The interesting thing about that story is someone forgot the secret to his strength because it says that his hair began to grow back. And eventually one day Samson says, all right, God, I'm asking you for one final feat of strength. And he positions himself between the two main pillars in the prison and he pushes with everything that he has and he brings the whole thing down, killing the greatest number of Philistines that he had prior to that point in his life. And that's the way Israel gets peace and they have peace for 20 years. Now they're fascinating stories, aren't they? I mean, great battles, heroism, and yet we have to understand that they're stories that are filled with really great tragedy it's one of the darkest periods in all of the history of God's people because, please grasp this, as great as the rescue of the judges was, the relief was only temporary. The next generation failed to learn all of the lessons from the previous ones so that you get to the end of this book of Judges, you read this summary statement in chapter 21, verse 25. It says, in those days Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. He's saying that when people disobey God, when they go their own way, when they make their own rules, chaos follows. And I think if we were really honest about it, like if we took a moment of self-reflection, we'd have to say it's probably a pretty good summary of what happens when any of us chooses our own way over God's way. You see, the cycle that we see in Judges is something played out in every life, in every seat, in this room this morning. You see, all of us find ourselves up here to the right, right? We, we all find ourselves in this area of sin eventually, right? I mean, we make our own decisions. We kind of, we're not perfect, right? It just happens to all of us. 
We get a good idea and we tend to run with it. And it turns out to be a really, really bad idea. We make decisions apart from God. We know the things we're supposed to do sometimes and we don't do it. That's what the Bible says is sin. And when we end up here, one of two things will happen for us. That we will either realize that we've ended up there and we'll make a change very quickly, or some of us will move on to stage two and we'll start to feel the pain in our life. Here's the way I like to think about it, is that you get two opportunities once you realize that you've made a decision apart from God to change. And those opportunities are, you will either see the light and make a change, or God will allow you to feel the heat so that you'll make a change. Think about that just for a second. That some of us get the opportunity to actually see the light and change course, right? We make a decision apart from God and we have a moment where it's very personal for us. We go down a road and it just doesn't feel right. We sing worship songs and God sends a moment of conviction through, through a prayer, right, or through a message. We realize that we've acted without God and we acknowledge that and then we can actually circumvent the pain a little bit and go right over towards crying out. It might be a personal moment. Actually, it might be someone else who does that for us, right? A friend comes to us and says, you know, if you keep going down that road, I don't think it's going to end very well for you. Or maybe it might even be a spouse that can come to us and say, you know, I think we need to get some help. An accountant says, if you keep doing that, that's a really, really slippery slope. A bartender says, hey, I think you need to cut it out. Or a judge says, you know what, you really need some help here. Or someone like me stands before you and says, would you turn it around? Would you please give your life to God? And you have a moment where you can see the light and you can make a correction. Or it might even be this one, that you get the opportunity to observe someone else's life and the choices that they've made and the pain that it's caused to them. And you can look at that and you go, I don't want to go down that road. I don't want to end up where they're at. I don't want to do what they've done. I don't want to live that way. And you get to fast forward the tape on your own life and say, that's where I think this is headed. And I don't want that kind of pain in my life. I don't want to lose this job. I don't want to destroy these relationships. I don't want to leave behind these kinds of damages. I need to change and I need to do it right now while I have the opportunity to see the light. Again, we're not perfect people, right? But it's our desire for most of us to follow God. And so we turn to God and we cry out to God and we want to be delivered. And some of us correct very quickly when we realize that. And it's a good thing because we get to circumvent a lot of the pain that that might bring. But we all know people, right? And maybe, maybe those people are really us who didn't heed those warning signs and we ignored them. We ended up over here with sin and we didn't make corrections and so we actually moved down to pain. And that's why I like to think is we start to feel the heat a little bit in our life. It's the consequences really of our choices to kind of go our way instead of going God's way and those things start to play out a little bit. So now we're actually living in the middle of a broken relationship. Now we actually live with a fractured family or an alienated kid. Or our business really is now starting to crumble and the bank account's crashing and there's a mountain of weight that's accumulating over us and we feel this distance from God. There's pain, right, that comes into our life because of our choices. And by the way, God will sometimes 
let us feel the pain so that it will produce in us the desire to change. See, you can remain where you are and never get any better. Or you can start to feel the pain in your life and say, all right, I need to actually change and turn to God. I like the way that Dr. Henry Cloud writes it in his book, Boundaries. He says this, he says, we change our behavior when the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of changing. Consequences give us the pain that motivate us to change. He's saying, look, part of breaking free is to be tired of the result that sin's bringing into your life. So to actually correct at this point is more than saying, I just want to get out of this situation in my life and then go back to it again. It's, it's, a, it's actually saying, all right, I, I want to get out of this because I know that there's a better way to live. I want to get out of this because I want peace with God. And some of us will actually do what we need to do, even though we know it's going to be really, really painful in the process because we just want what's on the other side. We want peace. See, pain is what brought some of you in here in the past. It might be what brought some of you in here today. And what we need to do is... We need to cry out to God today and simply say, God, I need you. I, I need you to deliver me. I'm tired of the life I've created. Will you set me on the path towards peace? There are a thousand ways to get into that cycle, and there's only one way to get out. You see, what the judges could only bring temporarily, God is orchestrating throughout history through his son, Jesus. A day when peace would, would be available permanently. Right? Not just a deliverer from situations, but a deliverer from sins. And here's the way it reads in the New Testament book of Romans chapter 5. Listen to this. It says that God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Listen, he's saying that the deliverer of all deliverers has come into the world and offered a way out of the sin and the pain and the patterns that we so desperately want to be free from. And that if you could actually make those changes on your own, I mean, if I could do that, I would have done it a long time ago. And here's Jesus saying, look, I made a way for you. I made a way out. You can have peace with yourself, peace in your life, and peace with God. He did that. Did you understand that? While we were caught in the middle of that cycle. And what's needed from us is what was needed here in the book of Judges, is that if we confess our sins, if we say, God, it's your way, not my way. God, I want peace. I don't want pain. If we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us of those sins and set us on the path to peace. And here's the good news, is that no one in our room this morning is further away from God than one step. And that step is this, is to turn around and experience the peace that comes from God. Now, if you understand that cycle, and I'll just wrap up with this. You, two things become very apparent. You know that you are somewhere in there. So, so where is it? Can you identify that this morning? I mean, where are you in there? And secondly, when you know where you are, 
you'll know exactly what's coming next and you'll know what to do about it. You'll know what to do about it. See, there's a thousand ways in there and there's only one way out and it's through a deliverer.